Hello and welcome. My name's Nicholas Schaefer. My co-host Neeraj Shah is off this week, and uh, I've brought on a couple of guests to help us continue the conversation. Um, last week, I spoke to Ned Schaefer, and we touched on uh, many topics, um, but some of them were transit-related. So we briefly mentioned electric vehicles and also transit infrastructure. And uh, later in the week, I was in uh, one of my regular social calls with a couple of my friends, and I realized I had on my hands uh, two experts in these areas, um, which is why I've decided to bring them on this week to talk about uh, to transit and, uh, and electric vehicles. So um, why don't we start with Joe? Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Nick. And are you introduced yourself as Nicholas? Should I call you Nicholas? Or is uh, Nick good? Nick's good. Nick's All good. right. Okay, Nick. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. My name is Joe Capper. Um, I've known both the guys on this podcast for years. We've cohabitated at various points in our lives. Um, I work currently as a transit planner and project manager. I work for an engineering and design firm that is mid-sized based in the Midwest. Um, and most of what I do is public transit consulting. So whether that's planning, management consulting, marketing, um, those are all the types of projects that I work on. So I'm excited to have the conversation with uh, you today. And just how I got here, maybe I'll give a little bit of my background. Um, I went to University of Wisconsin with these two, uh, have a degree in geography, um, which is a very good recipe for going to grad school in urban planning, um, which I did uh, at the University of Minnesota. And uh, I started that thinking I would go into um more housing or real estate development, something like that. But I ended up going to grad school in the economic downturn of 2008 when the housing market went bust. And at the same time, I had an internship uh, in Minneapolis at Metro Transit, which is the regional public transit provider here, um, and really kind of fell in love uh, with the job, uh, the industry, the people. Um, I had always been a transportation nerd my whole life, um, and that was kind of my jumping off point to uh, get make that my career. Um, after grad school, I worked in state government uh, back in Madison, Wisconsin for a while, and I've been in the consulting industry for about the past 10 years. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. And we're definitely going to dig in a lot more uh, with what you actually do day to day, because I'm excited to learn more about it. Sure. Um, but before we do that, Dan, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Nick. Uh, so I uh, met uh, Nick and Joe at the University of Wisconsin, and I got really involved in experimental hybrid vehicles uh, as a student there in Madison. And uh, out of that experience, uh, I started work at General Motors uh, and spent a, a good six years uh, developing battery pack systems for plug-in hybrid vehicles. Unfortunately, many of them uh, didn't get to market, um, but did have the opportunity to work on the, the Chevy Volt and uh, the Cadillac ELR, uh, which are both plug-in vehicles, um, and then spent uh, another uh, six, seven years at GM uh, before ultimately coming uh, to Rivian uh, to work on battery pack systems uh, in Rivian's fully electric vehicles. Excellent. Okay, so as you can see, we really have some uh, on-the-ground experts uh, with us today to talk about this. And um, 
maybe I'll just sort of recap a little bit about, <clears throat> you know, what our discussion was uh, in in the past week so that we can uh, relate some of the things we talk about to those issues. So uh, Ned and I were talking about, um, you know, transit infrastructure, and it was in the context of a more general discussion about techno-optimism and, you know, what is what contributions can technology make and what contributions can it not make towards solving societal problems? And um, in in the context of that conversation, both transit infrastructure and electric vehicles came up. Um, Ned expressed significant skepticism about, um, you know, electric vehicles being a solution um, to, uh, let's well, let's say um, pollution and climate change related problems. And, uh, you know, express significant enthusiasm about, you know, adopting more and investing more in public transit uh, as a way of solving things. And so um, I'd like to ask Joe a little bit about, you know, his experience with, um, tran- you know, designing and building transit projects uh, in practice. So Joe, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and some of your experiences there? Sure. Um, so, uh, what it is that I do, um, most, most of what I do, I would say is I work on transit service planning. So like you said, designing, mostly designing bus routes. So if you, where, where my firm does a lot of work is, um, a small or midsize urban community that, maybe does not have transit service planners on staff or maybe only has one planner on staff and doesn't have the resources in-house to do um, data analytics, uh, forecasting future ridership, um, the kind of, of mapping and, and analysis that we do to assess a market for transit service. Um, they will hire us on a contract basis. So I would say, you know, two thirds of the projects that I work on are fall within that realm of transit service planning. So, um, yeah, so go ahead. let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about the various players in this uh, activity. So mm-hmm. there's a, a city, which is, yep. so you're engaging with governments there. Um, city. Yeah, virtually all of my clients are, are government. Okay. But you work for a private firm. Correct. And uh, previously, you did work for uh, a public firm? Yeah. So I worked um, when I was in graduate school. My internship was with uh, Metro Transit, which is a regional transit uh, provider, so government agency here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And then I also worked for the state of Wisconsin. Got it. And so, uh, as you said, a smaller, mid-sized city Mm-hmm. might be looking to build out their public transit infrastructure, yep. for example, to add bus routes. And uh, your firm brings some experience in doing that to help whatever staff they have or to you know to build something from scratch. And so the project goes through a design phase and then an mm-hmm. implementation phase and the city ends up with new bus routes. Yes, or modified uh, existing bus routes. Um, often... Uh, that, you know, without 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 naming specifics, I'll say often we're brought in to some communities where maybe it's been 10, 15 
or so years since they've looked at their transit system or made significant changes to it, yet their community has grown and changed quite a bit over that time. So, you know, we make adjustments to um, try to take into account current and future uh, demand for service. Got it. Uh, so I guess kind of just thinking about uh, the, the larger topic of, you know, public infra- public transit infrastructure in the United States. Um, do you think, you know, having worked in the industry for a while, is it your opinion that cities are investing not enough, too much uh, in public transit? What do you think is the potential for public transit to really make a dent in the United States where, you know, historically it's been at least recently, um, kind of an underdog to, uh, well, cars mostly. Um, I, it, (laughs) it depends on where you go. I would say, I think there are a lot of places that are, um, maybe even I would say by necessity, uh, making significant investments in public transportation that are having really good returns. I would say your point is correct, Nick, that that nationally, I would say the norm is that there has been underinvestment in public transportation infrastructure in the country. Um, you know, we're looking at new federal funding that may address some of that. But yeah, I mean, from the post-war period on, largely the transportation investments that the U.S. has made has been in automobile infrastructure. And I think to, and I didn't listen to your previous podcast, sorry, oh. uh, apologies to the listeners and to Ned, Terrible. Um, but to what I think Ned might've been getting at with electric vehicles is that an electric car is still a car. Um, yeah. We still have that problem of needing to build out infrastructure to move cars and store cars that maybe isn't the most efficient or effective use of space of land. This is this is great. It's not not often that I get the, land. Not often I get the chance to play one of my friends off another. So, oh, so yeah. we've just established why cars are bad. Um, well, so look, that's hey, a good. That's Nick, a good look, I'm opportunity. Not, I, I'm going to go. You know, before I, I am a transit planner. I'm a transit advocate. Uh, but I am not a. I'm not a hashtag ban cars guy. Um, I've been to auto shows with my good friend, Dan, many times. I, I own that. a car myself. I'm okay with that. What I am passionate about is changing how we use cars, um, stacking cars on top of one another to commute every day is not an efficient use of time, money, our urban space. Um, okay. you so know, this, this so, is a good opportunity to bring Dan. So in, let's I think. just clarify that this is not a. I, I as much as you'd love to have the Oxford style debate of Dan Mayer and Joe Capper, is the car good? Uh, I we'll find other we're going to find other things to argue about. I'm sure over the course of this hour. So okay. Anyway, so, so Dan, carry Dan, on. Dan, You're the yeah, host. Let's, okay, let's get Dan in here. Um, you know, it, I I imagine that it may not have been sort of grand thoughts about you know whether cars are good or bad or, you know, you know, driving civilizational change that first brought you into the industry, but certainly by now you've had a chance to, to think about these things. So, um, you know, what can you tell us about your perspective on the role of cars as, you know, in transit in the United States and, and more generally, and, and then also the role for, you know, electric vehicles to help mitigate some of the issues 
Yeah, I think those are all great questions. Um, one of the interesting things about Rivian is it, it it's not trying really to be uh, a car for absolutely everybody. The the mission focus is is there's kind of a dual mission focus. Um, one is is very much interested in converting what is now effectively essentially a hundred percent fossil fuel consuming fleet for commercial delivery vehicles into electric vehicles. And then secondly, really a focus on adventure vehicles, vehicles that are capable of going off-road, capable of going to places where I, I hope Joe would agree it's just not economically viable to have mass transits to go to these places, both because terrain-wise they're just very hard to support infrastructure and probably more importantly, there's just not the high demand and high numbers to justify significant uh, investment in in rail or, or other things um, because there just wouldn't be enough people using it. So in, in some sense, the, the adventure market is more niche. I mean, obviously, you have, you have some big players like Jeep. You know, they, they certainly market uh, as having almost all their vehicles being pretty off-road capable. Um, but it's just a much smaller market than, than the whole auto sector uh, as a whole. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that way in which Rivian's different from other electric vehicle companies. So just to play it back, what you're saying is that there's you know two target markets, both of which you didn't say this, but maybe you were meaning to imply it, both of which you know are not well addressed by public transit. So uh, you know there are a lot of Amazon trucks driving around on the road. Um, I don't you know most of them at least at this point are burning fossil fuels. They're needing to go in you know, different places on different days. Um, and so, you know, making those all electric vehicles would be helpful and a place where, you know, it's not an obvious fit for public transit. And then another one that you mentioned is like off-road, right? Um, sort of by definition, there's no off-road public transit. Uh, be, maybe Joe can tell me what that would look like. But um, <laughs> I'll think about it. it. Sounds fun. So, so I think that... I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to get Joe in on this, but I, I, you know, I think that sounds plausible. One thing that occurs to me right away is that although, you know, in Rivian commercials will show people driving off road, but for the most part, Rivian vehicle owners will spend their time on the road. Isn't that true? I think it's probably a fair statement that the most uh, individual Rivian owners are, are not, you know, traversing boulders ninety nine percent of their days. Um, with that said, if if the products that they own, whether it's a scooter, uh, a minivan, or a Rivian R1T that is off-road capable, if you don't have that off-road capability, by definition, you're not going to be able to, to do those activities. Um, so it, it, it certainly opens up potentials that don't exist with, you know, I'd venture to say... 75 to maybe even 90% of, of consumer vehicles and, and arguably close to 100% of public transit. Um, but you're, you're certainly right. There, there's going to be very few people that will argue that every single Rivian owner is, is spending every minute of their day in a, an off-road environment or an environment that doesn't have a paved road. Sorry, Joe, I think, I think I cut you off there. Was there something you wanted to add? Oh, no. I think what Dan was touching on, though, in the use cases of, of vehicles is that you're 
I think there's personal personal ownership of vehicles, and then there's this potential for fleets. So whether it's a commercial delivery fleet, a public transit fleet, um, or a, a shared vehicle that someone uses, what about you know I the the uh, a shared uh, car sharing, electric vehicle sharing. Um, someone may not need the capability of a Rivian every day, but perhaps they could rent one for their trip to a national park or uh, some other type of outing, or they need to go to Home Depot and carry some stuff in the bed or go on a camping trip. Um, I think we're 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 just starting to see these different ownership models of vehicles, which again removes that it, it reduces that burden of needing space to store vehicles. It moves the cost burden um, from a, a consumer to maintain and fuel and charge and, and moving that to to a service-based model than an ownership-based model. And I think that mix is going to get get greater as we as we progress. And just, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about electric vehicles with Dan, but um, before that, Joe, are any of the buses that you're planning routes for, are they using alternative fuel sources or yeah. electricity? Yeah. I mean, every, I, I would say there isn't a single client that I'm working with right now that's not looking at electrification of their fleet. Now, whether they're doing it is is different, but at least they're, they're analyzing it. Um, the, the technology is, I mean, it's getting better every year as we go on. It's definitely um, some of the early adopters have had some, some painful experiences with some of their electric buses and charging infrastructure and just figuring out how to make this work well in a public transit environment. But, you know, public transit is, is a really, I think, a very good opportunity for electric vehicles, however you want to run them, whether it's catenary wires, um, battery electric, um, because you kind of know what a vehicle is going to do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's on a route. You know the range you need. You know the general terrain it has. Um, now, with that comes reduced flexibility in how you deploy your fleet resources, but um, no, I think, uh, and then there's, there are utility companies and government subsidies out there that are promoting this as well. So I think it's definitely a, an important piece of the puzzle when we're trying to reduce our carbon emissions and ensure more sustainable investments at these different agencies. Yeah. So let, let's turn a little bit more directly to that, um, like what the problem is that electric vehicles are solving exactly and what other, mm -hmm. you know, new problems they might be creating. Sort of the, the most basic argument you know, against, or at least, you know, partially against electric vehicles is that, uh, you know, it, it's not that the, 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 electricity has to come from somewhere. And also, you know, in, con, in manufacturing the vehicles, there are sort of new, uh, things that you need to extract, uh, from the earth. And so Dan, can you talk a little bit about like your thoughts about what are exactly the net gains, uh, that we make by switching to electric vehicles, given that, the things that I said, which are, you know, the electricity still has to come from somewhere. And also, you know, there are new extractive processes that need to take place in order to manufacture the vehicles. Sure. So from the perspective of the energy that's consumed by a vehicle, whether it's electrified or not, um, 
the the, the traditional vehicle has some sort of fossil fuel. Uh, by and large, gasoline, some of them diesel, but but fundamentally those all come from crude oil. There, there's really no mass-produced method to find an alternate liquid fuel source for those vehicles. It's got to get pumped from the ground. There's absolutely no other way to do it. I think the promise for electric vehicles is they they open up a diversity of true energy resource sources to power that vehicle, meaning you get whatever is in the grid. If if we as a country or we as a world chose tomorrow to go, you know, 50, 100% solar or wind or something that is truly renewable, um, we could have zero emissions as a function of the uh, energy, the electrons in the vehicle that end up being spent to spin the wheels. That is obviously a promise, given that today, I don't know what our mix is officially today, but I'm guessing, you know, 30, 40% coal, something like that. Places like Hawaii burn a lot of oil for electricity. Um, it's clearly not a reality today, but by having that option of, of electric grid operators choosing where the source of their energy comes from, we at least allow an individual consumer the potential to do something greener. So let's take for a moment the hard case. Do you happen to know what's the best understanding in terms of if we were to power power electric vehicles off of coal power? Um, what you know? What's the net effect? So I think from a... then from from gas powered vehicles to to electric vehicles. Yeah. So I saw this research this is a while ago, maybe even seven, 10 years ago. So coal net would produce more CO2 emissions. Um, I think there's also, depending on how clean those coal plants are, there might be more some sulfur dioxide emissions. Um, however, even if every every electric vehicle were powered off of a coal-powered plant from the, the source of their energy, because of the combustion process in, in a non-electrified vehicle, there are some other emission constituents uh, that would be avoided. Nitrous oxides, which are a big contributor to the smog uh, in, in LA near where I live, um, as well as uh, carbon monoxide, certain other constituents would actually go down, but net CO2 emissions would go up. Okay, so um, we need to make progress on the the problem of you know generating clean electricity if the, we're going to really see the benefits. Is that fair to say? Yes, and that's something, again, an electrified vehicle allows the rest of, of society or the rest of the energy sector to at least investigate solutions. It, it wouldn't necessarily mean overnight we, we would solve that problem. Um, but if every vehicle remains, you know, gas or diesel, there's just no way to do that. You know, some people say, argue, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So some people would argue, you know, ethanol is a solution where we can, we can transfer all of our gas consuming vehicles to something that's corn based that that's somewhat renewable uh, but the reality is we we can't we can't really blend super high in terms of the percent ethanol versus percent gas um, it just it damages the engines too much it requires a whole bunch of, of engine overhaul and then the ethanol process itself depending on on what research you look at or what analysis you look at um, can be argued to be pretty clean or not clean on on a um, what the industry calls well to wheels. You know, it's, it's true, all the energy and emissions input to, to growing that renewable uh, uh, fuel source all the way to burning it at uh, the tailpipe of the vehicle. Um, so it, it just, there's, there's just not enough flexibility with a, a liquid fuel consuming vehicle 
um, that allows the country or, or the energy market that that vehicle's in um, to switch to a more green, whether you're looking at CO2 uh, emissions based, whether you're looking at uh, other constituents, whether you're looking at you know water consumption to, to build and deliver that, that fuel stock, um, it, it just doesn't provide that flexibility that, that being purely an electric vehicle does because there are just so many other ways to, to create electricity as opposed to creating a liquid fuel source that's combustible in an engine. So um, before we turn back to the question of, you know, um, cars versus public transit and how they, you know, how they can contribute to a better future, hopefully in the, the transit area, just want to touch on the, the other part. So there's the, you know, w- the electricity has to come from somewhere. And then also another thing that's commonly discussed is, uh, other kinds of elements that need to be extracted in order to produce um, electric vehicles. Can you? T- I, my understanding is that this has mostly to do with the battery technology. But Dan, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there there are two components that drive uh, different types of uh, base materials from a conventional vehicle. So the big one you talked about is the battery, and we'll get to that in a second. But the first one is the motors. Um, so Motors do rely, in a large part, um, on rare earth magnets. Um, You can have an inductive motor that that means you just need a a lot of copper, a lot more copper than uh, a motor that that has uh, rare earth magnets. Um, But those rare earth magnets are are found in in very few places under the ground. Um, They do require a lot of of specialized mining to do. Uh, That mining is, you know, a pretty big industrial operation. Um, so I'm sure some mining operations can be done with slightly less environmental impact, but generally speaking, you know, you're, you're taking a lot of material out of the ground, sifting through it to find a very small amount of these rare earth magnets. Um, and that's a big challenge. Uh, if you don't have the magnets I mentioned, you need a lot more copper. Um, copper has been mined by civilization, you know, for hundreds, if not thousands of years at the scale we need it for motors, for all the other, uh, electrical circuits in a vehicle. Um, we, we just need a lot more of it to make electric vehicles. Um, and some of it ends up going in batteries where we have to actually transfer the electrons from an individual cell, uh, out of the battery. Um, so copper and rare earth, earth magnets are, are definitely what we're going to need a lot more of that, that just have to come out of the ground. Um, the newer, uh, I'll say different um, minerals, elements uh, that we need to support the, the chemistry of the battery. Um, obviously lithium, we talk now almost exclusively of lithium ion batteries. Um, so we need a lot of lithium now. Uh, about 10 years ago, all of the hybrid vehicles driven by Toyota Prius would have been a nickel chemistry based, so no lithium in those. And so nickel was was a huge concern 10 years ago because all hybrids were, were pretty much consuming um, much more nickel than anything else. Um, now, in addition to lithium and lithium ion batteries, there, there are kind of three other um, elements that, that we need a fair bit of uh, to deliver um, high energy dense cells and battery packs. Uh, so the one I think a lot of people hear about now is cobalt. Um, so cobalt in, in a lithium ion cell chemistry significantly increases energy density of that cell, meaning you can pack much more energy into a, a, a you know, volumetric or, or mass-based unit of, of battery size, uh, which at a vehicle level just means you can go further on a single full charge um, and, and you, you can go you know, further distances between full recharge or partial recharges. 
Um, additionally, we still do need some nickel. Um, we have not been able to get fully away from nickel. I think there's probably more nickel and we have had more nickel mining historically than, than say lithium or cobalt. Um, and then lastly, uh, some chemistries do require magnesium. Um, again, we, we've been mining as a civilization magnesium for, for quite a while now. Um, it's been used in other automotive parts uh, for light weighting. Um, so that one's maybe not the, the, the scariest ones when people talk about um, the scarcity of material um, or the environmental impact of mining it. But it's certainly, I think, the lithium and the cobalt that uh, lithium especially and some degree cobalt come are only found in certain areas of the world. Um, some of those places geopolitically are not the most stable. Um, lots of concerns. Uh, so cobalt, um, uh, the Congo, uh, I believe, is, is probably the largest source of cobalt right now. Um, lithium, Bolivia, China, um, you know, places uh, where there may not be the, the best environmental regulations. Um, so the, the mining can be done, uh, I'll say, not as cleanly as it would be done in a developed country or, or countries that um, have significant environmental protection regulations. Um, so it's, it's a fair concern, and it's something that I think the industry, and because these are also commodities, because they're, they're just fundamental materials, they're commodity markets that, that both drive the prices and, in theory, can, can help to regulate um, how uh, efficiently and, and cleanly those materials are extracted from the earth. Awesome. Thanks for that uh, in-depth breakdown. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I want to... So we we've. Uh... I just pause. We're t we were talking about cobalt. I want to tell your listeners that Dan used to drive a Chevy cobalt. That it is made correct. Of, it was a red made one. Of pure cobalt. Made of pure. Made of pure cobalt. <laughs> fresh from Bolivia. Uh, yeah, just a little throwback there. I was reminded of Dan's red Chevy cobalt with a stick. Yeah, that was so... a beautiful cobalt XFE. Fun car to drive. Yeah. One thing I want to talk to you guys about is, that, you know, thinking a little bit down the road, um, you know, we've mentioned that there are challenges around generating clean electricity and, and mining uh, metals. Um, but let, let, let's imagine, you know, that for a second that these problems are, you know, uh, suitably addressed. And we're thinking about like how to balance um, infra, you know, the infrastructure in the United States in terms of roads for driving, you know, electric vehicles and, um, you know, other forms of, well, public transit. Um, you know, if we, if we're starting to electrify public transit and we're starting to electrify personal vehicles, um, you know, how should we thinking, how should we be thinking about the, in the long term, the, you know, the, the transit infrastructure in a city, I guess, you know, one way to think about this would be to say, you know, if you were put in charge of redesigning a city's infrastructure, how would you think about the long-term planning of that? And the other would be if you're, let's say there's a new city rising up out of the desert somewhere, uh, how would you think about designing the infrastructure uh, for the transit from the ground up? We'll throw that that question to Joe. Okay. Um well, it's yeah, new cities do rise up from the desert quite a bit in the Gulf states. That's a that's definitely a thing. I don't do much work there, uh, I must say, but um, you know, I, I guess I Nick to respond to your question of how would you start from scratch? Um, I 
I'm going to have to reject your premise because I, I rarely get the opportunity to do that, to start from scratch. Um, we are, we, I work in places that are largely built out environments. They might be growing, but, um, there is some infrastructure there that you can't just uh, erase like a whiteboard and, and start over. Um, I guess what is at the front of my mind right now, and maybe I'll use that to, to start my answer is that from the public transit perspective, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and people's travel patterns that have changed as a result of that has, uh, unearthed some, some truths about, about how transit systems work and how people use them. And what has changed in, I would say, most of the communities that I work in is that such a huge portion of a transit system's ridership is work trips. And we've had these downtowns or major employment areas, universities that are now, I think, the current normal. I don't know if, I don't know how, if it'll be like this in perpetuity or whether we've reached an equilibrium or not, but where we're at right now is people are not getting up in the morning getting on the bus or the train or whatever and commuting to work in their downtown office or in their other office park or whatever every day they may be doing it two days a week three days a week four days a week but that flexibility in how and where we work has really the bottom has kind of fallen out of a lot of commuter oriented ridership in the in my in in my in the in the systems that I've I've worked with but what has gone up are we still see employment trips we still see people traveling to retail and shopping healthcare social trips so rather than what what has come back is what I would say is this diversity of trip uses so so rather than orienting your entire transit system around that nine to five downtown commuter, I think orienting your transit system around a mix of uses, a diversity of trip purposes, making it a viable option for folks day-to-day -day lives. Often you have often the best service in any community is that peak commuter service. It's high frequency, it's fast, it gets people to and from work really quickly. But if you're making, uh, let's say if you're going cross town or I want to visit a friend or maybe I don't work in that downtown or that core employment area, my quality of service is generally not as good. It takes a little bit more planning. I mean, unless you're there, there are large metropolises like New York, Chicago, where maybe that's not the case. But in, in a lot of cities, it, it is harder to make that type of trip. And I think that can be applied to a that can be applied to a variety of of problems is making those investments that are focused on quality of life for a broad a broad equitable um swath of people for a variety of trip purposes it's the same reason why you want to diversify an investment portfolio right you want to make it you want to make the transportation system work for as many 
uh, as many purposes as possible. And I think that can go to highway and planning for, for cars too. I mean, think about the, the lane mileage we have going in, focus on getting people in and out of downtowns that right now in a lot of places is excess capacity. We have an, we have an excess of roadway capacity in a lot of places or an imbalance. It, you know, it's, it's in the wrong places for the wrong types of, of, of travel purposes. So to ask, to, to answer your question of how would I start from scratch? I think, um, balancing out the space that we've made for different modes of transportation is generally the right thing to do right now. Um, because we don't need that giant, you know, the, the, the giant pipeline of traffic, whether it's public transit or people in cars on highways going to this singular purpose, this, it's getting, it's getting spread out a little bit evenly. And I think the danger of that is that, well, it can, it can perpetuate um, low density suburban land use patterns too. If, if we don't see the value of downtowns, there's an efficiency that comes with co-locating jobs and people um, that's less of a burden on on infrastructure. That I I, I my concern is that we're going to move away from that. That you're going to have people say that our our cities are dead, downtowns are dead, everybody's going to work in their cottages on the mountains or whatever. Um, and they'll all uh, need Rivians then at that. Yeah, point. they'll all need. Well, yeah, they'll have the Rivian charging network at, you know, the national park. And when they unlock their car, it'll chirp like a bird and um, it'll be great. I like Dan. It's a great it's a great now, truck. I, uh, a great truck, Dan. I'm glad. It's really good. I'm glad you you had answered that way because it's not something that I thought about. You know, I had thought about the, the problem of designing infrastructure from the ground up as like having an answer. But clearly, you know, your answer is. Your it's nuanced. You, I'm it, sorry. I work well, in a nuanced. Uh, it's like it's it, well, and to, I, I do get that question from clients a lot of like, you know, it'll be in an RFP. It's like we want to start our transit system from scratch, you know, wipe all the lines off the map. Um, yeah. How would we do this from the beginning? And then when we actually dig into it, it's very hard to do that because there's all I mean, people aren't idiots i mean there's these the lines are there for a reason there are people even if it might be a low ridership or poor uh ridership system um there's still usually a core group of people that are using some of the services there's very i mean there's very little service that has zero riders i mean i, I should say i have seen it from time to yeah. time yeah. uh but like but like you you all of a sudden it's like well hey we still need to we still need to be mindful of uh, the social benefits that come with, with having these options for people, because regardless of, I mean, everybody at some point in their life is going to be unable to drive a personal vehicle. So, um, and why should, you know, there's that, there's the equity question of making sure that people, um, can participate in community, can participate in the economy are not, do not have transportation as a barrier to seeking or maintaining employment. Um, those are all, in addition to like the, I think environmental benefits of good public transit investments, there are those social benefits too that you don't wanna lose sight of. 
Yeah. And I, and, and the, I guess the, what the I was going to say is that, you know, even a, a so-called perfect plan that you devised in 2019 might have become obsolete fairly quickly. I, I think that's the part of the oh, answer. That I've, I was... Yes, I, <laughs> I am gu uh, guilty, guilty of uh, completing some long range plans uh, in 2019 that I, you know, did not. We learned a lot, I think, that that did not come to fruition or um definitely had to be revisited uh right away so yeah I, th I think the the lines are already there in the map is is really an important thing to understand for even just fleet customers so if you think about you know the amazon vehicles delivering your packages every day they are completely reliant on roads lines already in a map mm -hmm. to make those deliveries right they're you know, at, at some point, maybe we'll have drones delivering every package, but for the foreseeable future, there's going to be some sort of cargo van driving on some road that's already been developed and paid for, or, or maybe it, it's still being paid for. Um, and from the, the, the vehicle standpoint, I mean, I would argue that, that most auto companies really are not super excited about having to design and build battery packs because they are the single most expensive part in the vehicle at this point. You know, if there were a way to, to wave a magic wand and have every road have, you know, an inductive power line underneath it, you know, I think we would probably live in a world where most vehicles, electrified vehicles, didn't have big batteries. They would rely on inductive charging from the road and we would, you know, avoid having these fairly large, fairly heavy, fairly expensive battery packs in vehicles. And so, you know, we, we could also make the argument, hey, we, we have a road infrastructure today that we have really no interest in tearing up and, and you know, burying electric lines underneath roads because it's really expensive. It, it would disturb a, an infrastructure that's already existing. Um, but, you know, whether it would be public transit systems that could then use those roads with with inductive charging underneath it or individual vehicles or delivery vans you know in a world where you had um you know big power lines underneath every road that, that could propel vehicles we could avoid a lot of the the need for batteries that we have today and just so dan's talking about roads i i would also say that you know we we continue to design roads that are putting you in a situation where you're basically dependent on an automobile to get around. Um, the suburban development pattern that is typical, um, you know, Nick, I've seen aerials of where you live, not to put you on blast. This is not a value judgment or anything, but you know, the single point entrance into a neighborhood, single point entrance out, series of cul-de-sacs, it's a funnel, right? You're funneling traffic onto a bigger arterial roadway. Whereas something that is more of a grid, if you think of, you know, a funnel versus a Plinko board or something where, you know, you have numerous alternate routes. Maybe I don't want to go down main street i'll go down second street um you, it the 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 traffic distributes more evenly but where we have limited access points we're basically that's putting you in a situation where you're funneling cars into one single pipeline which 
then the math, the, the, the traffic engineers will tell you that, you know, that's, that's how you get widening roads and widening roads and widening roads because there's limited access, limited options for that automobile traffic to take alternate routes, which is why you can move a lot of people more efficiently when you have this family of cars, transit, bikes, pedestrians in, in more, in, in these city centers that they don't just collapse under their own traffic when they're, when they're, when they're built with all those different modes of transportation in mind. I think this is related to another one of the topics that I wanted to touch on. Um, what, what lessons can we draw from the successes and failures of other countries in this regard? So, you know, in our previous episode, uh, you know, Japan's trains came up as a topic and China's new efforts in building trains. And, you know, I've spent some time living in Europe. I know both of you guys are well-traveled. Um, and, you know, we were mentioning dense city centers, which are, you know, a lot more common in Europe, uh, at least in some places. So, um, you know, I'd like to hear both of your guys' perspectives on, you know, wh- what can the United States learn from other countries, um, both good and bad? Is that for me? Could I go? Should yeah, I, please. That, all please right. Go ahead. Uh, I would say, um, you know, especially looking at a lot of European cities, I mean, plenty, the, you know, plenty of, there, there are a lot of people that own cars in Europe too, <laughs> but it's the way the spaces are designed is more for people and not for cars. Um, whereas I think in a lot of American cities, we prioritize the movement and storage of cars over, is this a pleasant place for people to be? Um, you know, people go on vacation in Europe and they take pictures of all, you know, the cafes and and plazas and wonderful bike infrastructure because those those cities tend to be nice places for people to be and they move people more efficiently. Now, they may not move cars more efficiently, but they move people. So actually, so, I'm curious, tying it back to our previous conversation, do we know anything about like per capita emissions from personal vehicles in the Europe? in Europe as opposed oh, to the United I, States? I, I do not know that, but... Dan, do you happen to know? I do not. In fact, I... I uh... Nick, can your producer look it up? Well, I was that's, say, that's, I... Uh, that's also Dan in this case. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah, I wanted Let to me... f- fact check myself uh, in terms of, of the U.S. grid. Uh, so from 2020, uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, uh, we had tripled renewable energy sources from 5% to 15% in the last 10 years. Coal consumption for, for electricity is down. Uh, 2010 was 45%. Uh, last year was 25%. So full 20% reduction in coal use. Uh, natural gas is certainly up. Uh, it's about 35% of the mix. Nuclear is steady at, at 20%, virtually unchanged over 10 years. And hydro also unchanged uh, at about, what is that, 6 7%. So I, I think, sorry to jump back to, to Ned's contention or concern, you know, if the, the rate of renewables continues as it's been virtually unchanged, that, that sort of slope of the curve in the last 10 years, you know, give us another 10 years, we, we could be easily up to 30% of you know zero emission energy sources um i suppose 
people will argue that natural gases increase is probably likely to continue as it, it tends to be the sort of reserve source when renewable uh, energy infrastructure is, is not operating at its normal state, meaning at night for solar, when the wind dies down for wind, usually the, the loss of that energy source is made up for in, in natural gas because it's much faster to turn on and off compared to a, a coal-fired plant. Yeah. But so, I think that, that gives me some optimism long-term that you know we, we could, in the next 10, 20 years, uh, see you know, maybe even 50% of our electricity generation be, you know, zero emissions based. Uh, obviously, it, it takes a lot of energy and materials and infrastructure to, to build solar plants, to build wind plants. Uh, but at least the, the emissions from those sources day to day would go to zero. I think to Dan's point, it is a lot about, you know, where people get their electricity. Because I'm just, I'm looking up per capita CO2 emissions by country. And it, I think I, I will try to find vehicle emissions, but that's, I think that's telling because it's where, where you're getting your electricity tends to be just looking at the list here. That seems to be the, the main determining factor. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably two things, Joe, right? First it's where you yeah. get your source and how far you're driving. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, European drivers because Europe is is a much more dense, yep. relatively speaking, smaller place than the U.S., especially if you're comparing someone who lives, you know, in Paris or Berlin to someone who lives in, you know, Chicago, who may need to drive, you know, four hours to get to the next major city. So I guess at that point, it's a question of like, does urban planning come first or does transit planning come first? They, they sort of go together. They um, do go together. And, I, I, uh, would, I would say land land use planning is the number one determining factor for for uh, you know that, that uh, you know <laughs> it's like uh it is a chicken or an egg type of thing but um there there are i think it's more it's not there it's not that building a transit line in an area sure you would hope that would generate um the type of development you want to see but you definitely get greater returns on your investment by building in a way that is supportive of transit first, I would say. Hey, Joe, actually, I've got a question for you. If we kind of think of the U.S. as, as a you know, fairly large country geographically, maybe decent-sized population, but, but pretty spread out, in my mind, you know, a country that, that strikes me as somewhat similar is, is a place like Russia, is Russia's transportation infrastructure on the public side, would would anyone argue it's significantly better than the U.S.? And, and have they made decisions that are drastically different, given that their geography and their population, you know, might be somewhat similar? I mean, forget about the, the geopolitical stuff. I'm just wondering, you know, it's, it's actually a, a case. For, you know, for the listeners, Nick is laughing right now quietly to himself i'm just waiting to hear what this answer is going to be <laughs> no i don't well because the answer is i don't know uh okay. i no i i um well russia i think has a much lower population than the united states i think um and a much smaller economy that's largely hedged on oil and gas this is you know the things i know from listening to podcasts but um i think uh I, you know, the, the Moscow p 
public transit system certainly is beautiful. I've seen lots of pictures of it, um, but to I, I can't speak to its effectiveness um, or not. That's a that's a long winded way of saying I have no idea. Sure, sure. Or maybe my question then is: Is the U.S. just really unique in terms of its size and population and, and population density centers, or or are there other countries that struggle with? Uh, either high density in very localized areas that are spread apart or just low density in general? I mean, you could look at Australia, maybe, as mm. a as a comp. Canada. Uh, Canada Canada is really, uh, I think, in a lot of ways, who we should be looking to for a lot of their transportation investments. And even some of their mid-sized cities have very good public transit systems that are very well used. Um, they have some bad examples too, and have some of the same land use and development patterns that that we do. Um, you know, they also have a lot of their population is is concentrated in these very in these more dense kind of urban agglomerations, like in in Ontario and and whatnot. But um, yeah, I I you know, a national infrastructure policy. It is your, your point is probably well taken, Dan, that it's a big country with a diverse uh, set of um, urban environments and rural environments, some very densely populated areas and some very uh, sparsely populated areas. And it's, it's hard. There is no one size fits all approach, I guess. So but I mentioned briefly one of the other, you know, developments that came up previously in terms of other countries being uh, trains and specifically high speed trains. Mm -hmm. It does seem like, you know, as someone who does know next to nothing about transit uh, in the U.S., that, you know, high speed trains would be a good opportunity, seemingly. Um, but, uh, you know, they failed to materialize in the United States. So I don't know if you guys have any opinions or thoughts about why that is. Yeah, I, I'll I'll give you one, and then I can uh, pivot to Dan. But I would say in a lot of those countries that you mentioned, um, first of all, federal there's federal policies I think so national policies and money put forth toward investing in rail infrastructure. The second thing is in a lot of other countries, passenger rail is prioritized over freight rail. It is the reverse in the United States in a lot of cases. Uh, railroads are largely, well, not not exclusively, but in a lot of cases are privatized. So where in other countries, the laws would prioritize a passenger rail system um, or it's, it's publicly owned right of way. It's public, the rails are owned by the government and leased to other people. We don't necessarily have that here most of the heavy rail network is owned by freight companies. So when you're talking about building, I mean, building brand new from scratch railroads is very expensive, not just for the construction of the track itself, but you have to acquire, in this country, you have to acquire land. You have to buy uh, real estate for that. And in the areas of our country where, um, you would probably prioritize for new rail corridors. It tends to also be where the land is the most expensive. So, you know, it's these, you get these kind of eye popping dollar amounts for building rail infrastructure in the U S that 
um, it's hard to find a political champion for, to be this to is, be honest. This yeah. is perfect, actually. So, I mean, this this ties us all the way back to you know the the. <laughs> and in the China, fruit. you can do whatever you want. The government can do whatever it wants in China. Take whatever land, you know. It's like with with some limitations, but it's like you know, comparing the U.S. to China is, you know, the the the. The property, the 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 perspective on property rights there is very different. Okay, so yeah. I was just going to say, like this this perfectly brings us back to sort of the through line of the last several conversations we had, which is you know related to to techno optimism and the potential for technology to create positive change and solve social problems. Um, and so I want to ask both of you guys, you know. Whether so, let, let's imagine that we're all cooperating towards a better future in transit um, for the country. Where where do the largest tech where do the largest challenges sit, and what's the you know what provides the greatest potential for you know providing positive change? If we think about it in terms of you know developments in technology versus um, you know cooperation around political change and and you know agreements, um, you know. Where where do you think are the biggest challenges and opportunities? Um, do they fall on the side of technology or politics, or is it hard to say uh, one or the other? Dan, can you do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, from my sort of biased perspective on on cars good, equal good, um, I, I think there, there's some clear uh, you know technical challenges that require um, invention for improvement. And, and the key one is just battery energy density. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the stored potential energy in a liquid fuel is just astronomical compared to how much uh, energy we can store in batteries today. We, we still need like an order of magnitude improvement in energy density in, in cell chemistry. So it's a fundamental chemistry problem that needs invention improvement. And those are coming. There, there's discussion of solid state batteries, which should, you know, significantly improve energy density, but we're going to need, you know, two, three, four leaps in, in battery chemistry improvements uh, before we can really start to compete with the energy density of, of liquid fuels that are stored in liquid form in a fuel tank. Um, Outside of that, the, the other major challenge that gets a lot of discussion is is the charging network. And, and I'll, I'll certainly admit that the dollars that get spent on charging networks could be argued as dollars that, that could have been spent on public transit uh, systems, whether it's infrastructure or just improvements. Um, so I'm sure Joe will talk about the, the, the different choices we can make in the dollars that are spent in the economy on improvements to both car technology and infrastructure to support electric vehicle charging. Uh, but we need, you know, orders of magnitudes, more chargers distributed throughout the U.S. if we want, if we choose to support a purely electric vehicle uh, transportation network across the U.S., be it individual consumer vehicles, fleets, uh, delivery vehicles, all the way up to, you know, something even Tesla's working on you know, semi-trucks that are, that are electrically driven. Um, all those things require, you know, significant improvements in, in battery chemistry, um, which, which both helps the vehicle go further and arguably means we need less uh, of these sort of rare minerals 
uh, to be mined out of out of the ground uh, because it would just improve the efficiency or energy density of the vehicle. Um, I think you know th there are some other things that 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 make um, you know the the ownership case sort of more appealing for electric vehicles that, that I didn't get to quite plug before. Um, but you know if you're just for a second just just compare a, a, a liquid fuel propelled vehicle versus an electric one. Uh, just based on on the the physics of of electric vehicles, um, you know they just happen to be more fun to drive, and, and a lot of that comes from the, the torque performance of an electric motor. You get instant full torque at zero rotational speed of a motor, whereas an engine, a liquid consuming liquid fuel consuming engine. You need to spin up that engine, make it go really fast before you get your your significant torque contribution to make the wheel spin go fast. Um, so electric vehicles, just by the dynamics of a, an electric motor, um, happen to be much more fun to drive, much faster, um, because electric vehicles, you know, really only need a battery pack, no fuel system, no emission system, no major cooling system, because engines get really hot. You know, most of of the the losses. Um, of the liquid stored energy that, that don't go to the wheel uh, are lost in heat. Almost 60% of, of the fuel you pay for at the pump, you're just going to turn to heat that gets rejected to the atmosphere. Um, so you, the vehicle needs all of these auxiliary systems to deal with the consequences of an inefficient gas engine, which has you know theoretically maximum efficiency, I think it's like 44% or something. And, and some of the best engines today are 36, 38%. So it's all of these auxiliary systems that electric vehicles just don't need to carry and pay for that can be um, turned into, you know, benefits to a consumer. So, you know, Tesla and virtually every other EV company now offer a front, you know, storage of, of stuff in the front of a vehicle because we don't need all these big components that used to be in an engine bay uh, to deal with the consequences of a gas or diesel engine. Um, the other kind of unintended benefit of an electric vehicle is battery packs, you know, to sort of protect the battery in a crash event, we tend to want to package them in the middle of the car on the bottom of the car. And that just happens to, to really help the vehicle dynamics of the car because all the weight is as low as possible. Um, so, you know, for the same power of an electric vehicle and, and gas-powered vehicle, it, it will just be that the, the vehicle dynamics, how it feels when you're driving the car, will be better in an electric vehicle. You'll be able to accelerate faster because of the torque uh, effect of a motor. Um, and, you know, you'll be able to use it. And I'd say the, the last thing, which, which I really experienced for the first time uh, when I was working on the Chevy Volt and ended up uh, driving and owning one, is just the drive quality of an electric motor powered vehicle because they typically have no transmission. They can deliver torque over the full vehicle speed range without shifting gears. The experience of just driving, there, there are no bumps when you shift gears, there are no clunks. All of that is smooth and seamless. Um, and it, it got to the point where, you know, I would, I would just feel the drive quality of a, a gas or diesel powered vehicle with every transmission shift, every time um, the, the powertrain decided to, to switch gears or to stop producing torque. Um, it just, the experience of, of just driving down the road was much less pleasant to me, uh, after I'd experienced an electric vehicle. And so I think a lot of 
individual consumers who, who drive any electric vehicle will, will, you know, experience that and either enjoy it or realize all the other things they had to put up with besides the emissions of a gas-powered vehicle um, when the world was, was, you know, almost exclusively gas-powered. Yeah, so I think that that's, I mean, not a totally trivial point because um, when you're when one of when your strategy is is contingent upon widespread adoption, it helps if people like to use your product, right? And so, um, you know, that might those points that Dan made might seem like a, a trivial point in the context of larger sort of like solving civilizational problems, but I, I don't think they are really, because like if it is true that people just like to uh, use your product, then you don't need to do work. Um, you don't need to you know break human psychology in order to get it widely adopted. So. Um, yeah, I think that's, those are interesting points, but Joe, taking back to the question of like, you know, I think you, you know, just by the nature of the work, it might be a little bit different situation. Dan mentioned that, you know, for him, there are certain technological breakthroughs that would really aid his efforts in, you know, getting electric vehicles more widely used. But, you know, you mentioned that in, in public transit in the U S you know, there are significant political challenges or at least differences. Um, so can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I am optimistic about the technology. I'm optimistic about having continued people that are passionate about having good, robust transportation networks. Where I get a little pessimistic is that political side. Um, I think what what we struggle with, um, particularly when we're thinking about building new transit corridors so like rail light rail bus rapid transit even just uh major street reconstruction projects that are looking to balance these different modes we're doing this looking at a 50 to 100 year investment um and that does not sync up with election cycles or political champions and um you know, w without getting into too many specifics, something that I've seen time and time again is like, you know, we're we're acknowledging that this city is a city is growing. We need to find a ways to to accommodate more people that will that we hope will move here. And that means that our transportation network is going to look different. The urban environment may need to look different. And the people there are a lot of people that are very vocal very powerful that want to maintain the status quo and i've seen you know a lot of projects can get watered down to the point where they're ineffective because we're concerned about a very small amount of street parking for example or construction nuisance like the nuisance of a construction project which is very short term in the grand scheme of things when we're talking 50 to 100 year investment to the point where you know, a, a local or state politician will um, will wield their influence to um, make a project worse, which doesn't do when you have bad <laughs> when you have bad transit. That's a snowball effect of well, this doesn't work <laughs> because it's bad. So let's defund it. You know, and it, it it's a uh, that's the that's the type of thing where I think the greatest concern on my end is and is the biggest obstacle to progress is that you know the hard truth is that in or if we're if we're looking at cities becoming more attractive to people if we if we're generally saying that our population will grow 
things might not look, things might not look the same. Things may change, and there are people um, that uh, object to that and have the ears of those in power. So, uh, but then again, I'm proven wrong in in a lot of cases where where things do get done, and some politicians do even surprise me. Um, but that's the that is always the biggest challenge of what we need to work through is building consensus and also not um, uh, not diminishing the the technical quality of a project. Excellent. So I, I can see we're over an hour now, guys. I really appreciate your time, and I want to be respectful of it. But um, you know, is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should have touched on that came to your guys' minds? Yeah, I think a, a big one, which I'm not involved in, so I, I can't really speak to, is what will happen when a significant proportion of the existing uh, individual vehicle fleet becomes uh, autonomous vehicles. And and the reason I'm, I'm sort of bringing it up is, you know, Joe had mentioned earlier that, you know, how do we, we create equity for people that, that can't own a car either financially or they have no place to store because they live in a city. You know, a lot of people a few years ago were arguing when fully autonomous vehicles arrive, they're going to, you know, be super expensive. So we will have to have a, a car sharing model where most people will not own a vehicle, but they'll have access through a fleet, a service, whatever, um, to use one. And so I, I guess I, I, again, don't don't really work in that part of the, the, the car industry. But I'd be interested, Joe, what your thoughts are on if, you know, if imagine cars, whatever their size, five-seater, seven-seater, ten-seater, you know, something close to a minibus, mm-hmm. imagine they all cost a million dollars. Would we suddenly have sort of a hybrid public transit slash not quite bus, but car-sized vehicle? What would that look like? What? So the question is, what would an autonomous transit vehicle look like or i think yeah and and, you know is there some sort of hybrid model where it it becomes i guess i I don't know how public transit is is completely defined like i imagine mass transit you know Mm -hmm. every sort of quote-unquote vehicle can store maybe 100 people you know i'd Mm -hmm. imagine autonomous vehicles will not really be that big maybe eventually they will but at least in the beginning they'll be smaller on the scale of you know five to ten seaters you know could there still be a public transit system that employs autonomous smaller vehicles than say a bus. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that model does exist in a lot of places. So with, with smaller vehicles that kind of operate on an on-demand service, similar to a ride hailing um, type of, of model. Um, I, I, to me, the, the biggest question with, 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 so there's the technology side of, of autonomy, right? Um, level five autonomy is basically you push a button and you know you open your newspaper and your car takes you where you need to go but then there's all these other increments leading up to that and i think there there's a big question for me about the supportive infrastructure that we have um because you know with the technologies that it uses right now like lidar um there are limitations in inclement weather or what if the roads, you know, if, what if it's dependent on looking at road striping and that the paint is, I mean, how many roads do you drive on where the paint striping is in terrible shape? Um, I, I think we're a long way off uh, 
from that full autonomy. But in certain settings, I think you could have it. I think there are, you know, campus-based shuttles or people movers or even like an automatic park type of thing where you get to your destination, you push a button, and the car or your vehicle goes to park itself. That is probably more realistic um, than, you know, full-on like minority report. You push a button and we're, we're in our pod car going wherever, uh, maybe in our lifetimes. But I think there's a lot of incremental technologies that can lead up to that. So a lot of those things about current road conditions, communicating with people's mobile devices, communicating with the infrastructure um, is are, can have significant returns in terms of safety, um, ease of use, wh wherever you want to go. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I am not familiar enough with, with autonomy in a, in a public transit setting um, to maybe give a, a super clear answer, but I guess those are just some of my initial thoughts is like, what are some of the barriers to doing that right now? And I think a lot of it is the quality of our, of our infrastructure, because it, there are things that, that these autonomous vehicles can do that still don't quite match what a human can do. Excellent. But if you're well, on a fixed highway, there are autonomous trains, like uh, uh, you know, public transit trains, SkyTrain in Vancouver. Um, if you're on your that, that's all people movers. That's a form of autonomy, I think. So. Excellent. Any any other topics that were on your mind, Joe? Or. No, I think we. I got to say funnel versus plinko board, which is like. Let, let, maybe I'll, I'll end with this. Have you uh, been asked to install Hyperloop anywhere? Um, no, thank God. Okay. No, I the, my yeah, you did have Hyperloop in the notes. Like here, here's the thing, uh, listeners uh, to the Fame and Power podcast. Uh, trains and buses, uh, proven technology that exists. We have it now. Um, I don't know that we need a hyperloop. I think uh, I think we get like you said. I mean, there we identified some of the barriers to doing high speed rail. That doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, uh, you know, the Tesla tunnel in Vegas uh, doesn't really solve any of the problems that we've discussed, in my opinion. <laughs> Just okay. kind of moves them underground for people that have Teslas. So, uh, I mean, cool if you have a Tesla, I guess, and you're in Vegas. I don't know. Um, okay, good. Not, well, not my jam. No one, I, no, no one's asked me to do Hyperloop okay. yet. Well, we can end on that note of agreement, I think. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for coming to provide your expertise, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Oh, anytime. This was a blast, Nick. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Nick. We'll see you. Bye, guys.